Last weekend, we began this series of messages that we're calling Rethinking Church. And many today have negative feelings about organized religion or about the church. And at least part of that might be because the church as a whole isn't doing a good job of doing what God has asked us to do. As I said last weekend, when you really spend some time looking at what the Bible says about the church and how Jesus himself established the church, it is difficult to exaggerate how important the church is in God's plan for our life. And so we're spending a few weeks looking at the words and the titles in the Bible that are used to describe uh, the church. And we're hoping that by doing this, that we will continue to work together to make impact match Jesus's desire and design for our church. Today's message will be a little different, as you might already have guessed. We're breaking the message into three separate parts, and we're going to intersperse music in between segments of the message. And in several messages during this series, I have asked some others on our staff to help me by sharing their heart for uh, the area that we're talking about. And I'm excited that in just a little while, you are going to hear from our worship pastor, Dale Lowry, as he shares uh, his heart and talks about the musical part of our worship as we focus today on why we meet, why we meet. You know, if you were to really think about that, um, when we meet together each weekend, we do some things that might seem really strange to someone who has never been to church. I mean, it might just seem kind of weird. We stand together and we sing about some guy who lived a couple of thousand years ago. And while we do it, some people close their eyes, some people kind of sway to the music, other people raise their hands, some people sing really loud, and some people sing really quietly, some people sing really well, some people sing really loud and not very well, and um, all that happens. And then someone talks for about half the service using a collection of writings written between 1500 B.C. and 100 A.D. And then we pass around a tray and people take a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice and they talk about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. And if all that wasn't strange enough, to top it all off, we clap at the offering time. It's just kind of weird sometimes. And we do this each and every week. And if a guest were to look around, I suspect that they would see some people who are passionate while they're singing. And some people who are listening at attentively during the message. And some people who seem to be moved emotionally. But in the same service, they would probably see some people that appear bored or distracted or completely unengaged. And it would be fair for them to ask, why do we do this? 
Why do we meet? Why do we come to this room and go through these rituals each week? What is the significance? How does it help? And I hope in this message we can give some, un, some insight on that because I do think that what we do here is a vital part of what God wants for us if we can really grasp while we, why we do it. And so uh, let's rethink church today by looking at another concept the Bible uses for the church. The Bible teaches that the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. That term or that concept was used for the first time after John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. You remember that day Jesus came and John was baptizing and Jesus came down and John baptized him. And then as Jesus was walking out of the water, John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was shortly after that that some of John's followers came to him and they were upset. They were upset because Jesus had begun to baptize people. He was kind of stealing John's way of doing things. He began baptizing people and he was speaking and many of the crowds that used to follow John the Baptist were now following Jesus. And John's followers were a little disturbed by that and when they talked to John about it, here's what he said in John chapter 3. The crowds will naturally go to the main attraction. The bride will go where the bridegroom is. A bridegroom's friends rejoice with him. I am the bridegroom's friend, and I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. John the Baptist said that Jesus was the bridegroom. And the people who go out to listen to him are the bride. He was saying the church is the bride of Christ. And other places use this same picture. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see this beautiful comparison between the relationship of a husband and wife and the relationship with, between Jesus and his bride, the church. And in Revelation, in several places, it uses this picture of the church as the bride and Jesus as the bridegroom. But how does this picture help us understand why we meet? Well, as a pastor, I have been a part of many weddings over the last 40 years. And I can tell you a lot about a relationship of the people getting married by how attentive they are to each other at their wedding. One of my favorite things to do is to watch the faces of the bride and the groom when they see each other for the first time at the wedding. Occasionally I'm disappointed. I have had brides and grooms kind of not look at each other and when they get in front of me, it's pretty clear that they're mad at each other. That they've had some sort of an argument I have seen other, been a part of other weddings where the couple seem more interested in who's there in attendance than they are in each other. But most times I'm not disappointed. Most times when they see each other there for the first time on their wedding day, there are big smiles. Sometimes there's tears. And when they finally get to where they can speak to each other for the first time, they're usually right here in front of me. 
and the music is ending and the maid of honor is fixing the bride's dress and I have seen bridegrooms turn to their bride and look at her and just say, wow. I've heard other grooms say to their bride, do you realize how gorgeous you are? I have heard brides get there and they look at their groom and they say, you look good. And I heard one bride say to her groom, I have waited my entire life to marry you. It's a very special, intimate moment. But here's the point. When we meet here, it is the bride and groom enjoying that moment. It's the bride and groom enjoying that moment. And I want you to hear me clearly. Jesus the groom is always excited to see us. He always has a big smile and maybe tears of joy. He has been waiting for this day. He is never angry. He's never disappointed because he loves you completely no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've been away. He's always excited to see you. And how we approach worship says a lot about our relationship with Jesus. We come here to reach up to him, to express our heart to him. And that's supposed to happen in every part of our time together, in the music and during the message and when we pray. It's all a way for us as the church, as the bride of Christ, to honor him to express love to him. And different people express worship to God in very different ways. You can read this in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there is this account of David, King David, stripping down to his underwear and dancing with all his might in worship to God. I am not going to do that. You are welcome. And please don't you do that either, okay? You know what that tells me? There are some biblical ways of worshiping God that I don't like very well. Let me list very quickly 10 biblical ways to worship, 10 things the Bible says about worshiping God. Speaking about or boasting on the Lord, that's the word most frequently used when talking about worship in the Bible. Speaking praise for God and speaking the word of God is a great way to worship. Singing, while uh, in the Old Testament times, this probably was more like chanting than what we do today. It was a concept that was used. The book of Psalms was one of the first songbooks. And it might surprise you to know that outside of the Old Testament, that singing doesn't seem to be that common of a biblical worship practice. Shouting, this emphasizes the victory that comes from God and that that was a part of biblical worship. They would almost lead cheers about God. And then there's raised hands. Now, this is the second most significant form of worship that the Bible talks about. It may also be the one that I get the most questions about. So let's spend a little bit more time on that. Now, I grew up in a church where very few people raise their hands. And by very few, I mean I don't remember anybody raising their hands in worship. I remember one day when I was in my teen years, everybody in the room was singing this song, and the song said, and we lift our hands before you as a token of our love. 
and not one hand in the room was lifted. Now, I know these people loved God. I know they did, but I also know that they didn't understand this form of worship or they weren't comfortable with it. And some of you don't understand it and might not be comfortable either. And I have grown to really appreciate raising hands as an act of worship. But I want people to understand it. I don't want people to do something that they don't understand. So let me quickly share with you some of the things that a person can say in worship to God by raising their hands. The first is this, I surrender. Isn't that a great thing to say to God? To say to God, I surrender my sin. I surrender my life to you. I give up. I surrender. Another one would be, I want you to hold me. Don't you love it? When a child comes up to you and does this, what are they saying when they do that? They're saying, I'm tired and I want you to carry me for a while. You're big enough to hold me. You're big enough to protect me. Those are great things to say to God. To say to God, you know, I'm weak and I just need you to carry me for a while. That's a good thing to say to God. Another one would be, I give you this gift. That's what we do when we give someone a gift. We do this and saying to God, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to give you my service. I'm going to give you my heart. That's a good thing to say to God. The other one is one we learned in school. You remember when the teacher said, who wants to lead the Pledge of Allegiance? And he did this. It says, I volunteer. Another great thing to say to God. I volunteer. Use me however you want to use me. I'm yours. Here I am. Use me. Those are all great things to say to God. And again, it's between you and God whether or not you raise your hands when you worship him. But maybe understanding some of the things that you can say and communicate with raised hands will allow you to express your heart to God differently. Let's go on with our list. Standing. When our president walks into a room, everybody stands up. It shows honor and respect. And when we stand in worship, we are showing honor and respect. Bowing down says, you are my king and I will submit to you. Laying prostrate on the ground, that's saying, I am lowly and you are great. My sin makes me want to blend in with the carpet. Clapping hands. Now, clapping hands in their day wasn't applause. Clapping hands said this, there's nothing in my hands. I'm not holding on to anything. And it also said, I agree with, your with you and with your plan. And then there was dancing. That was just an expression of joy that was in the heart and jumping. You see that sometimes in Christian events where someone will just jump up and down. And uh, it wasn't a very common biblical act. But again, it was just an expression of the joy that was in your heart. Now, do you have to do all of these things to truly worship God? No, you don't. But however you choose to do it, you need to find a way to express the love and the thankfulness that is in your heart. And some will do this very quietly without a lot of movement, and that's okay. They'll be expressing silently in depth a huge heart for God. And others will do it in a more expressive way. But however you do it, let's use this next song to express to Jesus, the bridegroom, how much we love him and how much we honor him. Let's stand and let's sing. How 
one higher than you. Redeemer, defender, how great and mighty Savior, there's no one higher than you. Gracious to forgive us by your power, we've been set free. And Lord, we stand amazed in your presence, astounded by your mercy and love. Hands are lifted high in surrender. Your grace for me always enough and there is no one higher than our God there is no one higher than you majestic in wonder you reign with love forever there's no one higher than you Your beauty, your splendor, your glory knows no measure. There's no one higher than you. You were always with us, gracious to forgive us. By your power, we've been set free. Lord, we stand amazed in your presence. Astounded by your mercy and love, our hands are lifted high in surrender. Your grace for me is always enough, and there is no one higher than our God. There is no one greater than you. Let my life forever praise the glory of your name. There is no one higher than you. There is no one higher, no one greater, no one like our God. There is none more able, Christ our Savior, great and glorious. There is no one higher, no one greater, no one like our God. There is none more able, Christ our Savior, great and glorious. There is no one higher than our God. There is no one greater than you. Let my life forever praise the glory of your name. There is no one higher than
So the way God has orchestrated my life is something I never could have imagined. Have you ever heard this ever heard the saying that God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called? A few weeks ago, Steve approached me and he asked me to preach one of the points of his message. <laughs> Y'all know me and I don't preach. Yeah, there's no ch- zero chance. My response was, say what? Me? You got to be kidding me. So here I am. God has continued to stretch me beyond my imagination over the years. Um, Let me go back to 2004. Um, I had been leading uh, a smaller band, but this band right here, some of the members are still in it, um, as a volunteer. And I was a volunteer leader voted in by them only because the current leader that we had uh, stepped aside as the leader. And they looked at me and voted me in as the music leader. I don't have a clue why they did that, but that's what they did. And I said, okay, I could take that as a temporary position, right? It'll be short-lived and we'll get on with the rest of things, right? And then a couple of three or four or five years went by and Steve approached me one day and he said that the leadership would like me to put my name in the hat to become uh, the full-time worship pastor. I'm like, say what? Like, here's the thing. I don't know music. Um, I don't read music. I taught myself how to play this guitar about 10 years ago. I can play some chords. I guess I sing fairly in tune. That's about all I have to offer. Uh, but the leadership of Impact in their infinite wisdom said that they wanted me to become the worship pastor of Impact. I wholeheartedly tried to talk these gentlemen out of this, believe me. Um, but the more I prayed, the more Sander prayed, the more they prayed, it became pretty obvious that this is where God wanted me to be. So I left a perfectly happy 40-hour-week content job that I was happy as a pig in mud in, right? I was, was a, I was fine. I left that, and I joined the uh, staff of Impact Christian Church. If you would have asked me 10 years ago that I would be sitting here, standing here on a stage, leading music, and have the title of a pastor, zero chance. Zero. Like, no chance but this is where God wanted me to be. Um, the title pastor gets me because if you go to the uh, pastor's meeting where all these holy guys go and then they invite me in, like the holiness meter drops a few points when I walk in the room. Yeah, I don't, I don't fit the mold. They, I, they have the reputation to call me the pastor of disaster, I think is what, is what they like to call me. Um, I ask myself on a regular basis, I really do ask myself, who am I to lead the people of, of impact Uh, It's a God's throne every week. Who am I? Why did God choose me? You see, God did not call call someone qualified, but he surrounded me with people and support, uh, and they support me every day. He surrounded me with people that are uh, musicians. They're vocal teachers. They're music teachers. They're piano teachers. They're professional musicians. They know all the music stuff. Right, And we just sit around on Thursday nights and we talk through all this. And as a team, we have one goal, 
to give God glory through music each and every week. Um, so that's, that's where that all comes in. Um, let me ask you, the title of this message is, Why Did We Meet? Um, let me ask you the question a different way. Why did you come here today? Did you come here to see friends or some uh, of us may have come because it's a social event for us? Or others, maybe it's just a family tradition. It's kind of what you do on the weekends. Or have you come with the intention of truly, truly encountering God this morning? Are you thirsty for him this morning? Are you thirsty to be in his presence? Have you come here because there's nowhere else for you to turn to get the questions answered that you have for the trouble you have in your life? Worship is to know God truly and then respond from your heart by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God and being satisfied with God above all earthly things. Why do we meet is another way of saying why do we worship. Worship is something each of us does. Many of us spend our time worshiping things other than God, uh, myself included in some of these. Um, I think I've come a long way. Um, some of us may worship sports teams, a hobby, a child, a pet, a car, a house, food. How many of you feel like your job is the most important thing in your life? Things that take priority in, in our lives rather than spending our time with God. If your golf game on a Sunday morning is more important than coming to church, then God's got some things that he needs to talk to you about. And that was me at one time. I played softball on three different teams. We played a couple games during the week. We played a couple games Friday or Saturday. And every Sunday was a doubleheader. Uh, that once, once or twice a month church thing, that was about all I could do. Um, but God worked on me and worked in my heart. And here I am now. As a worship leader, I'm here to try to disconnect you from the world that we're so easily tangled up in and to help you get to the place where God wants you to be. It's like we just left our houses this morning and we left every light switch on in the house. And what I mean by a light switch is that the kids are screaming, mom and dad are fighting, the, you know, the car won't start. And all we're doing is trying to get to church on time. So when we come in these doors through the music, I just want to take and flip off one light switch at a time. One light switch at a time comes off until what you have left is God. See, our job through music is to help you turn that light switch off one at a time until you clear the clutter of the world and you can turn your focus directly to God. I know that music uh, isn't everyone's avenue to disconnect from the world, and it's not everyone's avenue that they connect to God with. I know some of you would love to skip right by the music and get right to the message, except for today when I'm up here. Um, some of you... Um, just want to just get right to the message. It's your way of connecting. Um, but when you allow the Holy Spirit to do his work through the lyrics of the songs, you allow him to penetrate into your heart. So many people connect there, and, and, and I hope that you connect, even if you're not a musician, that that's where you connect at. The Bible contains over 400 references to singing and 50 direct commands for us to sing. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another for psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Worship time is when we recognize how big God is and how much we need him. You know, we've been in this, in this room about a half an hour or so. And did you realize that God is, is sustaining you right now? That your heart has beat approximately 2,200 times? That you've breathed in and out about 500 times? That you've blinked your eyes about 600 times? And 42 gallons approximately of blood has pumped through your heart. Since you woke up this morning, your tongue tasted food, and your ears have heard everything from your alarm clock to the sound of my voice right now. Psalm 139 says, Lord, you have examined me, and you know all about me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You know my thoughts before I think them. You know where I go and where I lie down. You know everything I do. Lord, even before I say a word, you already know it. You are all around me in front and in back, and you have put your hand on me. Your knowledge is amazing to me. It's more than I can understand. Why would we want to show our appreciation to Jesus? Jesus is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the author, perfecter, and sustainer of our lives. How could we not desire to praise him? In worship, we have the opportunity to remember his truths and his promises that the world wants us to forget. We have the opportunity to share with one another, encourage one another as God's people. We can breathe fresh life and hope and purpose into what sometimes seems like a lifeless and purposeless, purposeless uh, week. Music on its own is simply music. What makes the difference in the music here at the church is, is the lyrics. While we're singing, are you always aware of the lyrics that you're singing? Are you always aware when you, when you proclaim that God is his majesty and he's the king of kings, and when he tells you to be humble, like, like, are you aware of what you're singing? Like, do you think about the lyrics? If you notice the songs we typically do uh, on Sundays and Saturdays, they're vertical songs. They're not horizontal songs. What I mean by that is most songs don't use the words me or I or myself. Um, unless it talks about how God is working in my life and how God is changing my life, those words don't uh, come into play. And God is working through us and he is working uh, within us, but our music only reflects that at times. Most of the focus is totally vertical toward God, the image of, of Christ being our conqueror and a king to the image of him being a humble servant, washing feet. Let me ask you, have you ever heard God's voice in worship? His promises, have you heard them in the words that are sung? Do you hear the emotion of how much God loves you and cares for you? Do you hear the truth of his word in the songs we sing? Many of the lyrics that we sing uh, are directly from Scripture, teaching us and helping us memorize Scripture. We do songs like Psalm 100, which is Psalm 100. Somebody put musical notes with it, and we sing it. That helps us to remember God's Word, to memorize that. God tells us it's about who you worship and the heart of the worship that really matters to Him. Right, true, and proper worship comes from a proper perspective of who God is giving him the value he deserves. Job in chapter 9 says this, His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. 
Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moved mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads the waves of the sea. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed and miracles that cannot be counted. I'll say again, the time that we spend on the weekend worship here should not be about us in any way. It's about recognizing who God is, what he has done for us, our total focus on him and him alone. God doesn't need to be reminded of how good he is. We do. So someone in our growth group a few months ago told me that when she's at a worship service and when she's singing, she imagines herself standing in heaven, the throne of God with all the other saints, praising God in the heavenly, the heavenly realms. So um, won't you join me as we sing this right now and let's imagine that. Let's stand. The name of Jesus is a refuge, a shelter from the storm, a help to those who call. The name of Jesus is a fortress, saving place to run, a hope unshakable. When we fall, you are the Savior. When we call, you are the answer. There is power in your name. There is power in your name. In the name of Jesus, there is life and healing. Chains are broken in your name. Every name, every
you're the reason. be seated. You know, not only has Dale preached today, but I just tweeted a quote. So you are now a quoted on the social media preacher, Dale. <laughs> you know, when um, we asked Dale to do this job, when he finally said yes, he said, 
as long as I never have to do weddings or funerals or preach. <laughs> He's now done all of those things, and uh, I'm not uh, sad about that. He did a great job. Before we finish today, we need to look at one other aspect of worship, and you will see just as a marriage isn't just about what happens on the wedding day, the worship service, worship isn't just about what happens here. Worship is living daily for him. It's living daily for him. So far we've focused on what goes on in this room and we've said that worship is all about Jesus and it is and it's focusing on him and it's honoring him and it's meaning what we sing and it's hearing his heart as we open the Bible together and worship is all of those things but it's more than that. Basically it comes down to one of our unofficial slogans here at Impact and that is true worship means I live my life for an audience of one. I live my life for an audience of one. When we picture worship right, we should see ourselves on the stage and Jesus in the only seat in the audience. We sing for him, we pray to him, we raise our hands or don't based on uh, our relationship with him and we listen and we apply the message for him and our offering is worship to him because everything that we do is for an audience of one and Jesus is that audience. And when I grasp that, it changes my attitude in this room. It changes my attitude in this room. If he is the audience, it doesn't matter whether we like it or not. Francis Chan tells the story of a random worshiper who came to him after a service and he said, I didn't like worship today. Francis Chan's response was classic. He said, it's a good thing we weren't worshiping you. <laughs> it's not about us. What we do here is not about us. And so living my life for an audience of one changes my attitude in this room during worship service. But the picture is different than that. Worship isn't just something that happens in this room. It happens everywhere. When we picture worship right, we should see ourselves on the stage of our life every day in each situation. And Jesus is still the only seat in the audience. He is in the audience watching us worship as we interact with our family members. He is in the audience watching us worship as we joyfully serve him with our gifts. And he is in the audience watching us worship as we do our job each day and as we talk to our coworkers and as we talk with our neighbors and as we forgive other people. And he is in the audience watching us worship him as we live out the priorities that we have chosen uh, and how we use our time and our finances, and he is in the audience watching me worship when I decide how to react to that guy that makes me miss the green light because he's staring at his phone. It's all worship. Everything we do is worship all day long, every day. It's much bigger than this room. Our daily life is a part of worship that we offer to him. Sure, he is our audience when we're in this room worshiping, and he is also our audience when we're making daily choices to honor him 
and to live for him. And it doesn't matter if anyone else watching likes what we do. It doesn't matter if they approve. It doesn't matter if anyone else understands because we live our entire life for an audience of one. An audience of one. The message paraphrase of Romans chapter 12 verse 1 sums up what I think God is telling us about worshiping him. Look at what it says. This is a refrigerator verse, by the way, or put it on your mirror. Here's what it says. So here is what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Some of us may be having a feeling and feeling some horror right now. I mean, you might be thinking, if Jesus was in the audience watching me worship based on what I chose to do last night, I may be in trouble. If Jesus was in the audience watching me worship as I got my family ready for church this morning, I might be in trouble. But that's the point. That's the point. When we rethink church, we begin to see more than just the service as a time of worship. And as I take my everyday, ordinary life and I place it before God as an offering to him, then I broaden my whole view of, of worship. And if you're struggling with how to mesh your behavior and the sincerity of your heart that wants to worship God, maybe Tim Keller can lend some advice. He says this, how can you change your behavior? Change what you worship. Change what you worship. You see, the truth is, just like Dale said, our everyday life is always full of worship. And we're just often worshiping the wrong things. We're worshiping the wrong things. But before we're finished here today, we want to worship God through the Lord's Supper. That is the time when we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. The bread reminds us of his body and the cup reminds us of his blood. And he died so that the price for my sin can be completely forgiven and so that I can spend eternity in heaven with him. And this picture of the church being the bride of Christ is significant as we focus on the Lord's Supper because it's a picture of something that the Bible says will happen when we get to heaven. Look at this from Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard something that sounded like a large crowd of people. It was as loud as crashing waves or claps of thunder. The people were saying, hallelujah, our God rules. He is all powerful. Let us rejoice and be happy and give God glory. Give God glory because the wedding of the lamb has come and the lamb's bride has made herself ready. Fine linens were given to the bride for her to wear. The linen was bright and clean. The fine linens means the good things that God's holy people did. Then the angel said to me, write this, great blessings belong to those who are invited to the wedding meal of the lamb. Then the angel said, these are the true words of God. When we get to heaven, when we get to heaven together with every generation, 
with people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. We're going to share a meal together. It will be called the wedding feast of the Lamb. And Jesus is the Lamb of God that it refers to. And we are his church. And we, as his church, his bride, will be dressed in pure white linens, representing, according to this passage, all the good things that we did to serve him and to follow him and to care for the people that he loves. But we will not be there because of all the good things we did. We don't earn our way there. We will be there because we trusted Jesus to save us. And when we did that, he washed away all of our sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And so we stand before him pure and holy. And so today as we partake, please use this time to prayerfully remember his love for you and his forgiveness for you and use this time to worship him. Let's pray.